Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Oh, actually, just before we start, um, apparently Zoom has now done it so that you can only for it's not just for like more than two people that it cuts off at 40 minutes. It's everybody. Um, so it will cut off at 40 minutes. Okay. So I will like as it approaches that time, I'll just be like, oh, it's nearly there. Um, and then we'll come off and come back on. I'm going to look into a different video provider, but it's just something that's on my list. Of things okay. to do. <laughs> just that annoyance as well. Yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. Okay, cool. Today I'm joined by Melinda Karth. Melinda is a PhD candidate in neuroscience at Purdue, where she researches eating disorders. Melinda's PhD is titled The Effects of Anorexia Symptoms in Adolescence on Anxiety in Adulthood After Weight Gain. And she joins us today to discuss eating disorders, neuroscience, and animal models. Hello, Melinda. Hi, Hannah. <laughs> how are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine, apart from this really annoying drilling um, <laughs> that I hope is not going to be too like. It literally, as I clicked onto this call with you, started. So um, great timing, but now I can't run out and be like, oh, can you stop? Um, but other than that, the sun is shining and it's nearly the weekend. So that's good. Um, so thank you so much for joining me to chat today. I'm super excited um, to speak to you about animal models and neuroscience and everything because it's, it's like an amazing part of research that we haven't spoken about yet. So I guess to start with, would you mind explaining to the listeners kind of how you got into neuroscience? Um, so um, I didn't start in neuroscience. Um, my first, uh, I guess, foray into eating disorders was my experiencing experiences with figure skating. Mm -hmm. um, so what's interesting about my experience is that I started when I was around 12. And most people start skating when they're three or four. Mm -hmm. um, so already I was feeling like, you know, um, self-conscious about my body and older than everyone else. And one of the biggest problems with skating is that they really reward you being younger and thinner. And we see this all the time um, with like competitions, people are getting younger and younger, and there are a lot of eating disorders within the sport. Um, people often retire when they're like barely 15 years old or 16 years old and they have eating disorders. Um, so for me, that's basically when I started excessively exercising and restricting my food intake. I mean, obviously um, there were other factors that contributed to my eating disorder, but for me, that kind of really triggered it. And um, yeah, so I became really um, strict with my diet and I exercised a lot. And I kind of grew up with this idea that being thin was uh, more rewarding um, than um, I guess allowing your body to mature. Um, so then what happened was, um, I eventually stopped skating and, um, when I stopped skating, I remember thinking, you know, that I didn't really have a reason to eat anymore because, um, I wasn't an athlete. Um, and for some reason that didn't, it didn't really occur to me that that would be an eating disorder, but, um, to deal with that, the fact that I wasn't skating anymore, I really increased my exercising behavior and I still restricted my food intake. Um, so that was kind of an ongoing thing for me for a long time. Um, and ironically, what I went into after I stopped skating was I wanted to do culinary arts. Um, so I was making um, things like desserts and everything. And eventually I realized that when you're doing um, culinary school, they require you to taste things. Um, so I was really uncomfortable with that. And after about six months, I just couldn't handle it. So I dropped out. And then um, I went to university to study media. And while I was studying media, I thought, okay, as long as I'm in university, I might as well be doing a degree that I think is fun too. Um, and I've always found uh, psychology and like human behavior and uh, different disorders, especially because of my own experiences, um, interesting. So I was kind of getting 
for fun, a degree in psychology. <laughs> and I wasn't really planning on doing anything with it. Um, so then after I graduated, I got a master's in media from the University of Leeds. And it was about that time when I started to get really frustrated because um, while I think media and media influence on eating disorders is you know, really important and it definitely does play a role in the development of eating disorders, um, it didn't, it was frustrating for me because everyone's exposed to the same media, like everyone's exposed to the same diet ads, um, you know, the same body image um, messages, and, but not everyone develops an eating disorder. Um, so I wanted to look more at, you know, it on an individual level, and kind of understand eating disorder development more from like a neuroscience perspective. Um, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do at that point. I came back to the US and um, around that time, my dad died from a heart attack. And that was like completely out of the blue. And it was a really shocking experience for me. And then it was probably because of that, but also because just like my whole life had been, you know, just kind of thrown up into the air and I didn't know what I was going to do. I just said, you know, okay, if you could study anything, like what do you want to do now? And so I decided to get a master's in psychology looking at specifically um, neuroscience. And so I joined a lab with no experience. I'd never worked with animals before. Um, I'd never worked in a research lab before. Um, and I started working with transgenic mice um, and looking at binge eating um, in relation to serotonin and treatments for that. And then now I'm at, um, Purdue doing a neuroscience um, PhD, um, looking at more anorexia behavior. Wow. I, I love that journey because especially sort of, I think it's, you know, I don't know whether it's the same in the US, but in the UK, you're kind of made to make a decision at 18 as to yes. what do you want to do when you go to uni and what's your career path going to be? And who knows at 18, like yeah. even if you've got a very clear career pathway, you know, who, who knows what you want to be so I really like the fact that what you actually did was kind of picked out the things that you liked from them from media and thought hmm I, I do like the human behavior and maybe that's something to go down so that's definitely quite an inspiring route that you took um I also love the fact that you went into a lab with like no experience as well because so many people yes. think oh neuroscience like if I'm going to do that I've got to have so much experience in like, psychology and the brain and stuff and actually we all start somewhere so yeah, yeah if anybody is interested in that sort of thing then um yeah, I think that's really inspiring but yeah. I wanted to ask you more about the animal models because that I mean I that sounds so cool um so let's start with the binge eating disorder animal model so kind of you mentioned serotonin but what was the aim and sort of what were you trying to work out there so um the binge eating rodent model that we use for um in rodents um basically what how it works is you do two days of regular food and it's also mixed with like a high fat food and then um, what you do is you give them 24 or five days of the regular food, and then you give them 24 hours of the yummy food, and then six days of the regular food. And if you do this over the course of like six weeks, what happens is the rodents start to eat like binge on the um, high fat food or like the yummy food. Um, so they're eating more and more calories each time. Um, so they're creating like, is this creating like a binge like eating behavior? But what's really, what's really interesting about this model that I forgot um, was that despite eating more calories, these animals don't develop um, significant increases in weight or in fat. So I think that's really interesting because there's this stigma that binge eating is associated with a certain weight. When these animals are binge eating over the course of like a month and a half or two months, and they're not gaining weight and they're not gaining fat. So um, I think that's really interesting. Um, do you have any, sorry, Tinta, do you have any conclusions as to why that was? Mm, no, I don't. Um, but um, there's actually still not a lot that we know about um, some of these animal models. Like mm -hmm. it's just kind of like testing things out and then seeing how they work. Um, as for why that one works, um, one idea is that it might be serotonin related. So serotonin is involved in a lot of different things, but one of the things that it's really involved in is um, telling you when you're full. 
Um, so the mice that I were, was using, um, they had deficiency in serotonin. So they were genetically modified to have low levels of serotonin in their brain. And so what that would potentially mean is that they would be more hungry more often. Um, so um, one idea is that binge eating, one thing that might cause binge eating is changes in serotonin. Um, but that might be one reason why that model works is something about changes in uh, the serotonin levels over time. Okay. Am I correct in thinking that serotonin is also the happy hormone? Yeah, so serotonin is involved in a lot of things. In fact, that's why a lot of uh, different disorders are given uh, serotonin um, type drugs is because it's involved in so many different things. A lot of the times uh, medical professionals will prescribe serotonin, um, you know, type pharmaceuticals because it's involved in so many different things. It's worth trying, you know, maybe serotonin's involved in, you know, depression, maybe it's involved in eating behavior and oftentimes it'll um, help alleviate some of those symptoms for a bunch of different disorders. Wow. That's really cool that it's, it's very interesting that it's linked to happiness and then yes. as well it's crazy mm -hmm. I'm sure, sure there's quite a few different molecules that kind of have a lot of different responsibilities yes um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I guess the question then is so I mean I'm, I'm guessing that with animal models you know you you know something like binge eating disorder that's multifactorial there's so many things so that's kind of like a a, a part of the puzzle so if if you were showing um you know, what you showed with that study, how does that then translate to humans? So um, for that study, I was looking at a drug to treat binge eating disorders. So we looked at fluoxetine, which is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, so an SSRI. Mm -hmm. And basically the way that works is, you know, this is a simple answer, but it increases serotonin in your brain. So we wanted to see if um, the mice that had low levels of serotonin in their brains, if um, this drug would um, work for them in decreasing binge eating disorder as well, because one of the things that's prescribed to people who have binge eating disorder are often these serotonin um, drugs. Um, and so often when we're testing new drugs, we first test them in animals, um, obviously because it's safer, we can control more of like the factors involved in the study. Um, so basically that's what that's good for is we first, it's like a preclinical test. We test the drug, you know, or we test different things in animals first. And then what we do is we can then, if we find something like, oh, wow, this really works, then we can then move it into studying in humans. Um, okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think, I mean, I think that's probably a sensible thing um in terms of you know participant recruitment and stuff it's probably yes. easier to to get your hands on some mice um yes. rather than <laughs> participants um mm -hmm. but I was also just thinking and I mean I guess this probably wouldn't be something I mean I don't know you, you can tell me um but I was just thinking as you were talking about the serotonin there in terms of you know if the serotonin wait am I getting my head around this properly I think I'm getting a little bit up so the drug is, does that mean that somebody has more serotonin when they have the SSRI or less serotonin? Um, so what the SSRI does is it's supposed to increase serotonin in your brain. So right. yeah. the idea is that if people with a binge eating disorder or just people in general who um, have binge eating disorder, who might have low levels, levels of serotonin, you know, checking to see if this drug would still work um, for them. So it's kind of looking more at like individualized treatment. Sure. Okay. That was the path my brain was going down. So, <laughs> you know, when you just suddenly freeze and you think, actually, have I got this completely the wrong way around? But what, basically what my head was thinking was um, obviously, well, for a lot of people um, with binge eating disorder, binging can often be quite an emotional response. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, feeling sad, feeling lonely, kind of using yes, exactly, the binges yeah. and numbing. So, could it also be that the serotonin, the SSRIs help to improve mood, which then causes less binging? Yes, most definitely. And um, yeah, that's really important to mention because I think there's a stigma that binge eating is just people who might have like, um, I guess, dysfunction in like hunger signals, you know, oh, it's just about they're always hungry, but that's 
you know, hasn't really found to be the case. Mm. Um, there's also like this emotional component and a whole bunch of other different factors. It's not just because they're really hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so the emotional part is really important to mention too. Sure. Amazing. Well, there you go. You learn something <laughs> new every day. Um, that uh, really cool. I really like. Yeah, I think that's really really interesting. Um, <laughs> and then I think you mentioned when we were talking before as well that you've done some animal models with anorexia. Is that correct? Ah, uh, yes. So there's actually anorexia. One of the reasons that there's a lot of studies with anorexia, at least in animals, is because um, some of the most um, we have some of the most uh, symptom. We have some of the most um, animal models for looking at anorexia. So, like for binge eating disorder, we really only have that one model. And for other eating disorders, we don't really have animal models yet to look at things. Um, but with anorexia, we ha- we have a few different models that we can use. And the one that we use in the lab that I'm in is called activity-based anorexia. And basically, how that works is you first fast the animals for 24 hours. And then you give them limited access to regular food and continuous access. So 24 hours um, access to a running wheel. And basically what ends up happening is the rats will start running more and eating less. So even though the food is presented to them, they'll ignore the food and they'll start running more and more on their wheels. Mm -hmm. And you have to be really careful because they could run themselves, you know, they could starve themselves to death. So we're only allowed to do it for like a few days at a time because we have to, you know, obviously make sure that the animals are well taken care of. Um, But what's interesting is, is that if you give rats uh, 24 hours um, access to food and also continuous access to a running wheel, you don't see the same effects. So. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, It's interesting how similar that is to humans I mean I'm just basically thinking about my personal experience here but at the start of my eating disorder I did feel like I could just exercise continuously and not and not need the food so is there sort of like a I don't know a brain component going on there that has been documented that's similar between the mice and humans Um, Yes. So what's interesting is that while we know that hyperactivity is one of the first symptoms to develop in humans with anorexia, so it's interesting that that develops so quickly in the the rats. Mm. Um, And we're not really sure why this model works. um, But one reason we think that it might work is that something happens in the brain that kind of flips it. So that way, um, exercise is more rewarding than eating, um, which is you know, something that I think people with um, anorexia um, experience is that I know for myself personally, the exercise became more rewarding than the eating. So something might happen at that point, at some point where your brain says, okay, exercise is more rewarding than eating now. It's really interesting. I'm just thinking about like that maintenance, because Mm -hmm. I know for, and obviously this is just anecdotal again, but um for me, like the reason that I maintained that exercise, I mean, I, I guess this probably wasn't the whole thing, but was the comments from other people like commenting on how well I looked from yes, you know, exactly. losing weight. Yeah. And stuff. So it's, it's really interesting that the mice actually maintain that behavior despite they don't have that like social interaction. Yeah. And that's one of the benefits of animal models is that while we're missing like the psychological component and, you know, all those social factors, we can really look at the behavior. And it's interesting to just see that behavior develop, even though we don't have all of those other factors. Um, And that kind of, you know, really drives home the fact that these are biological illnesses. You know, these are serious, legitimate illnesses. It's not just somebody doing something because they want to, you know, look a certain way. Absolutely. Is there anything else that kind of in the research that has been shown from these transgenic mice models uh, about eating disorders? Um, Oh, well, so there's a transgenic mouse model of anorexia. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting with these mice is that they self-starve. And this is kind of sad, but they self-starve. And so they don't live very long. Um, But this is a way that we can kind of see um, you know, the genetics behind self-starvation. Um, and so for those mice, um, they think it might be some kind of genetic mutation in areas involved with like motivation to eat. Um, but again, with those mice, they only live like 
a very short lifespan because they starve. So we can't do like long-term studies with them. So there is literally a part in the brain mm-hmm. that controls your motivation to eat and, and you can kind of manipulate that. Well, um, you mean like researchers can manipulate mm. that? Oh, yes. And there's wow. a really cool um, technique you can use. Um, I don't use it. Um, I think it's very expensive, but it's called <laughs> optogenetics. And basically what you can do is you can manipulate different cells in the brain with light. So you can turn off different cells and like turn them on sort of like a video game. And then you can see like subsequent behavior from turning off those cells and turning them on. So like you can make animals, um, you know, binge eat, you know, you can make them not eat, um, you know, so things like that. That's insane. That's yes. and, and they kind of map from humans to mice, those areas, or are they the different areas in the brain? Um, they're fairly, they're pretty similar. Um, so mice are about 98% genetically similar to uh, humans and rats are about 92% genetically similar. Mm. Um, and there are some differences, like, especially with like the size of different brain regions, but mm. for the most part, um, especially with rats, um, the rat brain is um, structured very similar, similarly to the human brain. That is so cool. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and you mentioned earlier, kind of there was a model for binge eating and for anorexia, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing from the way that you said it, there there isn't really a model for bulimia or? No. You know. Yeah, for bulimia, basically what researchers are using is the binge eating model, but we know that that is not bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's why you don't really see a lot of uh, animal research with other eating disorders is because we we haven't developed models yet to look at things like so is it sort of the purging behaviors that are kind of the the unknown in terms of the animal model? Yeah, and um, mice and rats do not have the ability to um, throw up. <laughs> they actually ah, can't. So okay. um, that's one purging behavior that we can't use in an animal model. <laughs> right. Okay. But I guess, I mean, would that be ethical to give them laxatives? Would, would there be something you could do with that or because you're giving it to, the, I suppose you're giving them the high pellet food, so. Um, so with animal studies, there are really strict protocols that we have to follow. Um, mm. And um, we have to like submit things and have them approved and we have to justify why we're doing the research. So yeah, there are, you probably could do things like that. Um, you just would need um, to justify, you know, why you were doing it. And to demonstrate, you know, how you're going to take care of the animals and things like that. Just as you were saying that, it's come to my mind about one of the blogs that you wrote um, about giraffes. And oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I genuinely can't remember the blog, but I remember reading it and thinking that is actually amazing. Do you mind just explaining to the listeners what that was about? Uh, yeah, so we know that uh, pika is a um, the craving and eating of things that aren't considered edible. Um, and um, when we're looking at um, it in animals, um, it's usually um, geophagia. So that is um, eating things like sand, dirt, and clay, um, or osteophagia. So that's eating bones. And one of the animals that engages in this a lot are giraffes. Um, if you just search on the internet giraffes and uh, pika, you will see um, like a ton of different articles and videos of giraffes eating bones and stuff. And the reason that they do this is um, like mineral deficiencies, um, like their environment is barren and they need to um, uh, find minerals in, you know, in some way. Um, but what's interesting is, is that um, I saw an article from just that was published just last uh, month. And um, so what they did was they looked at a Bengal tigress. Um, So this is a tigress that was in captivity. And um, they found that um, she initially started eating sand um, because she was given um, rotten meat to eat by accident. And so she had digestive issues. So she was eating this sand to kind of like alleviate her stomach problems. But then what happened was, is that over time, it became almost this obsessive compulsive thing for her to deal with anxiety. Um, And we know that animals that are in captivity um, often deal with like obsessive compulsiveness because, you know, they're in confined areas. It's a stressful environment. 
So for that animal, um, she was actually using the, um, you know, actually eating sand to deal with her own anxiety. And that's often what we see in humans with uh, Pika. That's incredible. <laughs> like, that is just amazing that, I don't know, maybe this is really rude of me to animals, but I always just think, like, how do you have the concept of, of you know emotions like anxiety and so maybe it's not I don't think how but I think do you have that um you know like my cats when I leave them in the house all day and then I come home and they're super excited to see me and it's like I don't know it's just so interesting because they don't speak so you don't know what's going on but the, the fact that they actually I mean do they like experience things like depression anxiety that sort of thing can animals experience that um, yes, it's actually been shown that, um, and then there are some studies done on this, um, m- rats in particular, um, if you put a rat in a distressing situation, so maybe like you put a rat behind a wall, um, it'll start to cry and the other rats will try to free it. Or like there have been monkey, monkey studies where monkeys will save, um, you know, food for another monkey or, you know, they'll um, share with other monkeys. Um, but rats are particularly empathetic, you know, they'll um, um, help other rats, um, you know, they'll take care of other rats. So animals can experience um, emotions. Mm. And we do have ways to measure things like anxiety and depression, um, using like different, uh, um, I guess, models. Um, But we really have to go off of behavior because the animals can't speak. Um, So for example, if we want to look at anxiety in animal, um, basically what we're measuring is the animal's avoidance of a novel situation. Mm -hmm. So we know that animals like mice um, or rodents are really curious. So the idea is that if you put a rat in a novel situation, so like a new, you know, a new experience, you put the rat through a new experience, like if you put the rat in a, um, like a new box or something, um, an anxious rat will explore less than a um, less anxious rat. Wow. That is actually amazing. I think it's so clever as well. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, when you when you hear about the kind of way that you're testing these things in animals and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like it's a new situation that's could be anxiety provoking, but actually the work that must've like happened behind that to, to think about, you know, how could we actually test anxiety or binge eating or anorexia in these models is just, yeah, it's just a whole host of things going on behind the scenes as well as actually what happens. So that's really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. I do really want to talk to you about your PhD as well. Um, so, I mean, the title very nicely explains the effects of anorexia symptoms in adolescence on anxiety in adulthood after weight gain. So could you kind of give us an overview of like what you're looking at, where that inspiration came from? Yeah. Um, so, well, a lot of it was... Um just kind of from my own experiences, because I have an anxiety disorder, um, specifically, well, generalized anxiety, but social anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I seem anxious, that's why. (laughs) Um, But so that's um, part of um, why, you know, from my own experiences, just my own experiences with anxiety and anxiety and anorexia. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, there also haven't been a lot of studies looking at anxiety in, um, people who have quotations recovered from, you know, anorexia. Um, and obviously we know recovery is different for everyone and we all define it a little differently. Um, and typically in research, people define recovery as weight restored. Um, and the other part of the inspiration for my PhD came from a study that my lab did. Um, so what they found was that if you put rats, adolescent rats, adolescent female rats, um, through um, the um, model of anorexia that we use, um, those rats will be more anxious when they're adults and their weight restored than rats that didn't experience those anorexia symptoms. So their anxiety actually increases. Is that because of changes in the brain or? Uh, yes. So they found that um, it was changes in stress response. So um, parts of the brain that deal with how you respond to stress. And I found that 
in an area involved in anxiety, um, there was prolonged inflammation in that brain area, um, even though the animals were weight restored. Wow. And it, wow. I mean, I think it, it's really interesting because like a lot of the time, um, I think when people speak about eating disorders and comorbidities and stuff, they, they talk about anxiety and a lot of the time it's, you know, specifically in anorexia, um, sort of that low weight, which causes those mm-hmm. symptoms, but actually the fact that, you know, it, once your weight restored and considered recovered, um, that's really interesting. I'm actually, sorry, my brain is like that flying around <laughs> with questions now. Um, but I was just, I mean, and this, this is more just a, a point I'm going to make rather than a question, but you might know. So um, I had atypical anorexia. Um, so yeah. I lost about a third of my body weight, but I still remained at a quote unquote healthy BMI. Um, yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I was just thinking then, like I also have anxiety, um, and I'm considered weight restored. Um, so do you think it was because, right, let me try and get my words out because it's still flying around and I'm getting so excited. <laughs> I take a deep breath. Um, so do you think because of that weight loss to a place where our or my body wasn't comfortable and at the end of the day I was in a starved state is that still gonna have the same sort of pattern um in terms of now being weight restored or do you think that that would have to be a different study because it wasn't sort of the the you know the BMI of under 18.5 so are you asking that um, would you have the same anxiety as when you were, um, I guess, cl- classified as being sick as you would when you were classified as being um, recovered? I think, I mean, this might be what you've just said, but I think what I'm trying to ask is, so your your study is looking at the in, sort of like people that had anorexia, so a, a low weight, and now, um, this is what I'm assuming, by the way, please tell me if I'm wrong, um, and now they're in a recovered weight restored state and you're looking at the anxiety so do you think that the same sort of progression to the anxiety would have happened for somebody with anorexia nervosa as atypical anorexia despite the fact that they weren't classified actually as underweight but had lost weight I I think so because um and this is just my own thinking is that I think um well, one, eating disorders are so complicated and, you know, they're complex and that just because, I mean, we do know that malnutrition and being underweight has, um, you know, it influences the brain in certain ways. Um, we've seen that people with eating disorders, um, their brains are actually smaller in size when they're, mal- when they're malnourished. And then um, when they are weight restored, their, their brains um, increase in size. Um, so there are differences, um, obviously, in the being um, underweight. However, I also think that, you know, everybody's an individual and that um, we'd have to look at each case, you know, on a case by case basis. So um, I don't know, I just I feel like with so much emphasis on weight restoration, and even though that's what my dissertation is looking at, it's more of like a, a research you know, mm. um, aspect. Um, but I do think we would probably see the same thing in people with atypical anorexia. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you just said about the brain size. I don't know whether this is the reason why, but this is what my brain flipped to. Um, my, so I am currently working um, in neuroscience as well, uh, which is cool, but not, not in eating disorders. But I was speaking to my supervisor um, about my interest in eating disorders and he said that he had tried to do a study um, looking at the brain but it actually taught him a a massive learning curve in that participants with eating disorders are um, they're not they're not hydrated so actually being able to look at their brain you can't do like an MRI scan because they're not hydrated yes yeah that's um Yeah, that's, uh, that definitely makes sense. Because with MRIs, one of the things that we're looking at is, um, it's been a while since I, since I learned about MRIs, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with like water and oxygen. Um, So yeah, that would make sense. 
Okay, so that's that's really interesting that the kind of the same patterns. I mean, obviously the research would, would need to happen, but um yeah. so is there sort of a particular part in the brain that is responsible for kind of the anxiety symptoms that's affected in anorexia? Um, yes, well, that's actually one of the things that I'm looking at. So um, the previous study that I mentioned that my lab did looked at an area called the amygdala. And usually when people talk about like feelings and anxiety, they think about the amygdala. Um, but there's research that shows that the amygdala might actually be more involved in fear and not anxiety. So we know that the difference between fear and anxiety is that Fear is when it's something that's known. So like you're scared of a specific thing. Um, anxiety is more like an uncertain, ambiguous thing. Um, so there's a distinct difference between fear and anxiety. And so an area of the brain that might be more involved in anxiety is called the BNST. And that's the area that I'm looking at. And what's cool about the BNST is that basically it's kind of like a judgment center. So your brain has all these different areas that kind of take information from, you know, your thoughts and also from like external things. Um, so like sensory information, how you're feeling. And so all these different brain areas send this information to the BNST. And then it's the BNST's job to kind of come up with a verdict of whether you should be anxious about what you're experiencing or whether you should you know, not be anxious about what you're experiencing. And then it makes its verdict and then it sends this information to other areas of the body or to the brain. And then um, those areas of the brain send information like signals to the rest of your body and then you respond to that. So if your BNSC decides, oh, you know, this type of information is something you should be anxious about, then that's why your body then starts, you know, responding to it in a way that we interpret as anxiety. Mm. Wow. You just reminded me why I love biology so much, because as you were saying that, I was like taken back to my neuroscience lectures at uni and like, like all the pathways on the board and just being yes. like, what's happening inside me? This is insane. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for re-sparking that, uh, that excitement. Um, what was I going to ask before I got super excited? Oh, no. So is it is your kind of theory that through anorexia maybe malnutrition or particular behaviors that bnst area is affected or um yes so um my theory is that um there's an increase in certain cells um in that area that are involved in kind of strengthening connections to brain regions that are involved in um anxiety so basically there's this um increase in these connections that make us anxious about things. So, um, you know, experiencing the, ex the symptoms of anorexia would then lead to, um, you know, stronger connections in the brain that tell us that something is anxious. Right. And so do those connections sort of grow stronger, the more kind of certain behaviors, we participate in certain behaviors, I guess? Yes. Um, so that's uh, basically how your stress response works. So, um, you know, the more that we participate in something, um, you know, avoidant behaviors or how we deal with stress or anxiety, um, our brain starts to learn, you know, oh, this is how this has worked before, you know, this is how we've dealt with uh, stress or anxiety before. And then these connections get really strong. And then the problem is, is that when we're anxious or we're stressed, we fall back into those behaviors, those coping mechanisms. And, you know, we can change how our brain is structured, how it's connected together, but that takes a really long time and a lot of diligence. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's one of the reasons why, um, changing our behavior is so difficult is because our brain is so, um, you know, those connections are so strong if we repeatedly do those behaviors. Mm. It's really, really interesting kind of, I guess, looking at it rather from a way of just like talking about an eating disorder, like actually understanding what's going on in your brain. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess my question was, um, I, I get the science between you know that like neuronal synapse and the more that you engage the stronger it gets and stuff but mm -hmm. and maybe this is just my like my perception of it so it might have been biased but it almost felt 
kind of when my eating disorder developed again anecdotally um as soon as I engaged in that behavior um it was almost like there and and that was it well I guess I can't really remember that but definitely sort of if I've had a relapse um it's felt like I've been doing really well and you know developing stronger coping mechanisms and then all of a sudden I count calories one day and then I'm like ah everything's falling apart so is that sort of does that sound plausible or is that just kind of me yeah that sounds definitely plausible and um just a way that you know people have it's been shown that people use eating disorder behaviors to deal with like stress and anxiety and there's actually a biological reason for that so one of the more interesting ones that i know of is there's a hormone that you have in your body called ghrelin and basically um well it has a bunch of different um, things that it does. But one of the things that it's most known for is that it tells you when you're hungry. And so the less you eat, the more ghrelin your body produces. And for some people, ghrelin also is rewarding and it reduces anxiety. So for some people, wow. when they're not eating, their body's producing more of this ghrelin and they're actually feeling like a sense of reward and it's reducing their anxiety. So they've learned that if I don't eat, then, you know, this reduces my anxiety and it's really hard to, you know, unlearn that. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. What, yes. I, mean, I mean, what kind of biological advantage does that have? Like, I don't know. Um, there are many things we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that just sounds like a very silly advantage that needs to be uh, dissolved in evolution. Um, I guess, I mean, the question would be, because I don't want somebody to hear this and think, oh, well, that's why I that's why I, d- I don't eat is because I have this hormone that means that I feel good when I don't eat. So how do you sort of combat that? Is it about having different coping mechanisms or? Yeah, I would think with anything, um, it would just be developing different coping mechanisms. Um, we don't know enough to know if, um, I mean, I'm assuming that the brain would change um, if you, you know, stop engaging cert- in certain behaviors because that's what the brain does. The brain is what we call plastic, so it can change. Um, and if you, you know, stop engaging in certain behaviors, then your brain will change. So mm-hmm. my thinking would be, and this would be something that would need to be tested, but if you stop engaging in, you know, so much, um, I guess, self-servation or food restriction, then maybe your brain would change the way that it responds to those chemicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about, I mean, and this is in your PhD, so you may not know the answers yet, but I don't know if you have some particular ideas um, about the types of anxiety that people recovered from anorexia, in my experience. Yes. So I got this idea because so I work with two different advisors and one of my advisors um, works with animals and the other one works with humans. And so I was telling my uh, human, the person who works with me with the human side of things, and he said, oh, you're looking at anxiety. What type of anxiety? Like what type of anxiety are you looking at in the rodents? And I was like, type of anxiety. Because with rodent studies, you just it's just, you know, the rodent is avoidant of certain situations. That's anxiety. You're not really thinking about what type of anxiety is that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got me thinking, oh, well, what types of anxiety do people with anorexia experience? And I started looking it up and there has actually not been a lot of studies looking at anxiety type in people with anorexia, wow. um, particularly people who have been recovered from anorexia. So we know that um, OCD is the most common. Um, social anxiety is very high too. Um, a lot of people with anorexia have social anxiety, but then apart from that, um, there really hasn't been that much research. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is that people who have experienced anorexia symptoms or anorexia like symptoms. So for my dissertation, I'm not going to be using people who, um, were diagnosed with anorexia. Um, rather they're people who were, I guess you would classify it as atypical maybe anorexia or people who experience uh, anorexia-like symptoms. But do people who experience anorexia symptoms when their weight restored, you know, when they've quotations recovered, what types of anxiety are they experiencing? You know, are they still experiencing obsessive compulsiveness? Are they um, anxious about their food? Are they anxious about exercise? Um, Are they anxious about, you know, 
um, the way their body looks? Uh, are they anxious about social situations? So, you know, even though they're recovered, are they still experiencing, you know, anxiety that's related to their eating disorder? I absolutely love that idea because I yeah. think we're still so stuck in a world where weight restoration is yeah. the most important and pivotal thing. And yes, obviously mm-hmm. weight restoration is important, but as you've just mm-hmm. listed off there, anxiety around exercise, food, body image, social situations, all of that, I think mm-hmm. are such core parts to an eating disorder yeah. that are often not target. I mean, I had treatment well, like 14 years ago, so maybe maybe mine was a bit different but it doesn't it still doesn't feel like they're kind of things that are specifically looked at um yes so yeah I mean that sounds amazing if if that I mean obviously it's going to be different for everybody but I guess then the next thing would be like to think about you know supporting and treatment and stuff like that so it's it's really great that you're looking into that yeah and what's interesting is that um I found a study because um I was interested in seeing what studies have been done in anorexia or with anxiety in recovery from anorexia. And there was a recent study where they took people who had been uh, hospitalized for anorexia and they interviewed them. And then 12, six to 12 years after they'd been released from the hospital, they interviewed them again. And what was interesting is that 85% of those people um, no longer had symptoms of anorexia, but 80% of them had either an anxiety disorder or they were um, depressed. And only half of those people had those disorders prior to their anorexia. So that means that either during their illness or during their recovery, they somehow developed either an anxiety disorder or a depression. Wow. That's, that is, that's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because mostly you hear about like anxiety um, leading to eating disorder development, which mm -hmm. is true, but that study shows that the anxiety, anorexia itself might lead to other disorders yeah and it's almost um it's almost as though it could potentially be that the anxiety came and the anorexia was a way of relieving those symptoms but there wasn't maybe a massive recognition of the anxiety before yeah exactly yeah it kind of exacerbated it yeah yeah um I mean again I've said anecdotally about 50,000 times but (laughs) when I look back on my childhood I, you know, I was that, what people called annoying child, because I I couldn't stay away from my home on a sleepover. I had to be, I had to be with my parents. um, And I had a lot of anxiety around social situations. And like, at the time, my parents would always joke, like, oh, Hannah, you're such a worrier. But actually, now I'm like, no, that wasn't that that was that was anxiety. And then, yeah. And then the eating disorder came and, like you say, exasperated it. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really interested to see what you find, because that'll be um, really interesting to know um I have a couple of questions from the listeners for you okay um so where have they gone um I suppose kind of covered so one of the questions well we'll go was which regions of the brain are most affected and what are the implications? So I suppose we spoke about anxiety, but we didn't speak about the areas for eating disorders, I guess. So this is really, it's kind of contradicting what we people do who study neuroscience um, (laughs) do, but um, there's a misconception that um, one brain region is involved in like one thing, like the amygdala is involved in emotions or the hypothalamus is involved in eating motivation, or um, there's an uh, area called the VTA that's involved in reward. And those areas are really involved in, um, you know, specific um, interpreting like specific information, but at the same time, it's the, your brain is, you know, connected. So one, thing or one brain region is going to feed into another brain region into another brain region so it's really hard to say if there's a specific region that's involved in eating disorders because the brain's just you know connected in so many different ways but some of the primary primary ones are the hypothalamus so that's involved in like food intake um i would say um Uh, the VTA. So that's involved in things like um, reward and motivation. Um, Probably like the amygdala, the BNST that's involved in uh, like emotions. 
Um, and probably your prefrontal cortex, because that's involved in like um, thinking and, you know, kind of making decisions. So basically pretty much the whole brain. <laughs> That's just eating disorders though, isn't it? Like I had a conversation with somebody the other day and they were like, what causes an eating disorder? And they wanted one thing. And I was like, oh, well, I'm afraid we've got a journey to go on because um, it's not just one. Um, yeah. But I, I think that makes sense. You know, the, the whole brain is working. It's working together through the neural networks and stuff. So it makes yeah. sense. It's not kind of a specific area. And also if there was a specific area that was like, I'm the eating disorder area. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully we would have something to target that area and turn that area off. Um, <laughs> that would be the dream. Um, and yeah. then the other question was, how long does it take to heal the brain and what therapy has shown to be most, to have the most positive impact? Okay, so um, we're still learning about um, like recovery from eating disorders. Um, the most people have looked at the most, the um, eating disorder that people have looked at the most is anorexia. Um, and, you know, I don't really think there's a, a reason for that with human studies, because um, we know that binge eating disorder is the most common, um, but people still tend to focus on anorexia. Um, but what's been shown is that um, we do see brain changes during illness. And sometimes we see brain changes, um, you know, post illness. Um, but we often see like a restoration in size. Um, so we're still kind of not really sure exactly how the brain heals. Um, we know that the brain can heal, but we're not quite sure how long it takes or if some parts of the brain heal and other parts, you know, don't heal as well or things like that. Um, but as for um, treatment, um, we know that CBT has been shown to really increase like neural connections. So create those new neural connections that you need to be able to change your behavior. Um, so there's a neuro, you know, neuroscience evidence that shows that CBT does work in uh, creating um, changes in your brain that help you during recovery. Yeah, when I read the question, I thought CBT would be a good one because that is yeah. constantly just constantly getting a behavior and going against it doing it again and again and again yes um, <laughs> so much fun um yeah no that was brilliant thank you so much Minda it's been I mean I hope you can tell from how excited I was getting at all my questions how much I enjoyed that so yeah it was brilliant thank you so much okay thank you for having me I really enjoyed it if you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.